Ruth 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Melon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for the joy it is to hear your word read aloud among us as a community. We thank you for the joy that you have given us in Christ. We thank you for the joy that you have given us and that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, that we might know what you're like and that we might know how we're called to live in light of who you are and what you're like. And so this morning as we're here gathered together, my prayer for us 
Lord, is that you would draw us near, that we would sense the depth of your love to us in Christ, that you, God, would open our ears to hear your voice, that you would open our eyes to see your glory, that you would open our hearts to believe, that we would trust you. Lord, we ask all of these things. They're magnificent things to ask. We ask all of them in the mighty name of Jesus this morning. Amen. So in chapter 1 of Ruth, we are introduced to this family who are leaving their homeland because of a famine in the land, famine in their place of residence. They were from Bethlehem in Judah, and we are introduced to Elimelech and his wife Naomi and to Kilion and to Malon, their sons, and they leave the land of Bethlehem in Judah and they journey on to a place called Moab. It's chapter 1. We're introduced to them and we see that when they get to Moab, things don't go particularly well for them. We find out that Elimelech, the husband, dies, and then not too long after, the two sons are, uh, who are, are then married to Moabite women, they pass away, and Naomi is left in Moab alone. No husband, no sons, no heir to her family, no stability. She's destitute, broken, and scared. She decides that she's going to go back to her homeland, and so we see that through chapter 1 and what ends up happening. And she is accompanied back to her homeland in Bethlehem and Judah with her daughter-in-law, who is also a widow, and her name is Ruth. And this is where we begin looking at the story. And we begin chapter 1 looking at a family that is full, and we see a family who returns empty-handed. That's what Naomi says. I have went away full, and I came back empty with nothing. She's down in life. She's down in the dumps because of the circumstances of her life. She doesn't see God's hand at work in any of it. And if she does see his hand at work in it, she says his hand is actually against me. And she's struggling with this. We see Naomi and Ruth, who are two women who are in need of redemption. Chapter 2. We see the conversation going on through the circumstances that are happening. And and Naomi tells her daughter-in-law, Ruth, she says that we do have... A redeemer. In fact, this guy Boaz, who you've got into relationship, he he is one of our redeemers. Chapter 3, we see that Naomi puts a plot in place. Fred talked about this last week, the seven-step strategy of Naomi to send send Ruth out to go and meet Boaz in the secret of the night undercover. Boaz is sleeping and Ruth approaches him and uncovers his feet. Eventually he wakes up. He says, who are you? She says, I'm Ruth. Spread your wings over me, for you're a redeemer. Her marriage proposal to Ruth, or to to Boaz. You're a redeemer. And in chapter 4, we're seeing the outworking of what this redemption looked like in their culture. And so in chapter 1, we see a family in need of redemption. In chapter 2, they recognize that there is a redeemer, a family redeemer, somebody who can restore their lost fortunes, and they can bring them back to a place of honor and belonging within their culture. And then we see in chapter 3 that they actually identify the redeemer, and they say, you're a redeemer. And he says, yes, I am a redeemer, but there's one closer than I. And in chapter 4, we're going to see what I'm going to call the story of four redeemers. The story of four redeemers. That's essentially the way that we're going to walk through this and just look at these four different redeemers that I think are mentioned in chapter 4 and hopefully that'll help us to put a nice bow on the end of the book of Ruth. The story of four redeemers. As we move into that, I want to ask the question, 
Because I think it begs asking, if you just came here this week and you're going, okay, Ruth chapter 4 sounds like these folks have been in a story for a while, and like maybe I missed a whole bunch. I just try to catch you up on the gist. You're welcome. You say, what is a family redeemer? What is this concept that the scriptures are talking about when we say, what is a family redeemer? When they're saying that there is a redeemer available to help our family out, what does that actually mean? I want to show you because I think it's an important part of our understanding of of the fullness of it. And I know that some of this has been, but I want to bring it into here because of how we're looking at the story of four redeemers. So let me show you because in the Old Testament, there were lots of ways that these family redeemers were called to act, but I'm going to highlight two of them. Two of them. Let me show you the first one. The redemption of, of a piece of land that belonged to somebody in your family. It had to do with the land. I'll show you out of Leviticus 25. If you're like me, you get super excited when we start reading scripture out of Leviticus. It fires me up. I'm, actually, I'm serious. You guys are laughing because you think I'm kidding. I love Leviticus. Don't hate on Leviticus. So you're so much quieter than our South Fan Church when I say things like that. You sing better, but, but then you scare me. Leviticus 25, 23 to 25 says, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. This is the word of God. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor, here's how it works, and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So the redemption is tied to the land. Because God is the one who owns the land, who brought them into the land, the land of promise, and he gave it to them as their inheritance. Therefore, when they are poor and destitute and they sell themselves out of their property, they sell it to somebody else because of their financial hardships and the circumstances in their life. He says that's not the way it's supposed to be. It should not go on like that forever. So somebody in the family needs to step in and help out and bring that back because that's their inheritance. Okay, keep that in mind. Secondly, it can be redemption of a person. It can be tied to a person. Leviticus 25, 47 to 49. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him or a close relative from his clan may redeem him or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. No bankruptcy law in 11th or 12th century BC, Bethlehem in Judah. Can't just go, okay, I'm bankrupt. We're going to wipe all the debt. I'm going to start over. You're broke. You owe somebody a debt. You sell yourself in servitude to them. Sometimes that was for a time where you would then pay off the debt that you owed. Other times that was like, look, I'm yours. I'm in trouble. I'm yours. What God's word says and his instruction to his people is that he has put provision in place so that his people no longer need to be in bondage and enslaved in this way. They no longer need to serve somebody else. Somebody in the family should step in and pay off the debt and free the person. There's also the laws of Jubilee and all these other things that go on, and we're not given enough time to get into some of them. But these are two of the main focuses and the roles of the family redeemer. You say, well, where does this idea even come from? Why is God putting in place this family redemption law 
that somebody close in the family can save you out of financial hardship or otherwise. Let me show you because I think this is where it gets good. Exodus chapter 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, verses 6 through 8, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession I am the Lord. So when you see the purposes of God, that his people had been enslaved for hundreds of years under the burdensome load of the Egyptian people. I watched Prince of Egypt last night with my kids. I didn't grow up in the church, so somehow I missed that movie. It was really good. Jake's like, yeah, I know it's really good. I was talking to him, like, he looks at me like I'm a moron. How did you miss that one? I don't know how I missed that, but I thought it was really cool. My kids have seen it. My wife has seen it probably ten times. I was like, this is good stuff. Pausing it, going, kids, do you understand the context that's happening here? Shut up, Pastor Dad. Let's watch the movie. Like, this is the kind of conversation we're having. Yeah. Dad, is that theologically correct? No, that's actually artistic license, but it's okay. You know, these are the conversations in my house. I'm sorry. Here they were under the heavy hand of the Egyptians and God says to his people, I've heard, he says to Moses, I've heard my people crying out. They need deliverance. They need freedom. I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to purchase them through mighty acts and I'm going to bring them out of slavery and bondage. I'm going to bring them into the wilderness and eventually I'm going to bring them into the promised land, the land that I promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. They will no longer be slaves. They will be free. And they will no longer be people without a land. I'm giving them the land I've promised. So what happens is if you sell your land or you sell yourself into slavery, God has put measures in place where you don't have to live like that because you are the redeemed people of God. That's what he's saying. The underlying act of the kinsman redeemer is based upon the very foundational elements of the character and nature of God and the way that he has acted toward his people for he is our redeemer. It says in verse 6, I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. People were set free. The land is given to them. Now this new hope that the people of God are given, it finds its source and its foundation in God their Redeemer. In the book of Isaiah, prophet Isaiah calls him the Lord your Redeemer. In the book of Jeremiah, the enemies of God's people say their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will surely plead their cause. And then all the way through the Psalms, you see this kind of phraseology, this he is my rock and my Redeemer. He has redeemed me from the power of the enemy. He's the one who redeems your life from the pit. He's the one who has Uh, redeemed you from the life of the pit who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. There's the psalm that says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. This is our God. And that's why there are redeemers in Israel. To emulate the care that he has for his people and in fact, to be a means of his care for his people. Boaz becomes the one he cares for Naomi through because he's a redeemer. 
God works through the family redeemers that his faithful love might be made manifest among them. And this is what we've seen in chapters one through three. But redemption is a costly venture. Redemption is self-sacrificial. Redemption is precious. Look back at our text in chapter four, verses one to four. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Boaz in chapter 3 said there's a Redeemer who's closer than I, so I need to sort this out before I can redeem you, Ruth, but don't worry, I'm going to settle the matter tomorrow. And so he's making good on his promise. The Redeemer whom Boaz had spoken of came by, so Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And verse 2 says, he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and and I come after you. And this unnamed man says, I'll redeem it. Now, and they're sitting down at the gates of the city. That's not like when you drive past the sign that says, Welcome to Vancouver. Gates of the city had a little bit more importance. That was where, it was kind of like where the council met. It was the town hall of the, of the city itself, or the town itself. This is where all the business was conducted. This is where these kind of agreements were made. This is where you could somehow call upon the elders to come and sit down and listen to what was happening within the life of whatever transaction, your dispute, or problems you needed to deal with. And so he calls this unnamed redeemer, this one who is closer to Naomi than he, and he calls him, he says, sit down here. He gives him the story, and we are introduced to who I'm calling redeemer number one, Mr. No Name. He's got no name significant. Boaz, I think, is pretty crafty and wise, and I think he's as strategic as Naomi in some ways. Boaz says, hey, here's the thing. Naomi's back. She's got no children. She's got nothing going on. Would you be interested in redeeming her property? He knows that she's too old to have kids. so He doesn't have to worry about raising a bunch of little babies. He goes, yeah, I'll, I'll redeem the land. Like in my head, I'm thinking like, this sounds like a fantastic financial land transaction kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll redeem the land, he says. And Boaz has them in the palm of his hand. Look at this in verses five and six. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Thanks, Mr. No Name. Now, this is actually awkward. Like, I don't know how you read scripture, and sometimes I just love to put myself in it. Could you imagine standing there among the elders, and Boaz says, hey, I'm just looking to make sure somebody takes care of Naomi. Here's her land, and the guy's like, ooh, this is advantage, Mr. No Name. This is good. Yeah, 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 I'll redeem the land. I got it. Boaz says, oh, fantastic. Also, comes along with Ruth the Moabite, and in order to do the honorable thing, you're going to need to perpetuate the name of the family line by having a child with her. And he goes, right. That's going to be a problem. But it gets awkward. You ever sit down with somebody and you have this kind of conversation and it just starts to get real awkward because somebody is taking advantage of a situation and you're kind of like, you don't know what's going on. 
and then all the truth starts to come out and you just cringe. Like, I, I don't do well in those situations, but I also love them. I don't really know how that works. But you just kind of sit there and go like, oh, it's getting awkward. Verse 5 says, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. That's an What Boaz is talking about here is something called Leverite marriage. Leverite marriage basically comes out of Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 10. Here's what it is. We read about this thing, Leverite marriage, and it occurs when one brother dies, not leaving a child, leaving his wife as a widow and childless. Her husband's brother is then supposed to marry her And it says in verse 6 in Deuteronomy 25 that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. That his name may not be blotted out of Israel. The big idea behind this is it's an absolute tragedy anytime somebody's family line dies because they're the people of God. You know, we were joking around years ago in my family because... There are 10, my last name's Landry, there were 10 Landry grandchildren. And, uh, well, pardon me, there were eight Landry grandchildren. Two of them have a different last name. So it brought it down to a group of eight of us. There were five women in that group, my sister and my female cousins, and three men. I'm the oldest of the three. I had children first. Baby one, girl. Baby two, girl. Baby three, girl. People looking at me like, you going to do this? Is this name going to die with you? I was like, I frankly don't care, but uh, love my girls. Kind of have a hard time with little boys, to be honest with you. They're terrible. Little girls are neat and tidy and kind, and little boys are just, just savages, just like I was when I was a little boy. And, and like once they get older, like they're about 17, 18, I'm like, I'm in. Let's hang out. Like, you're good. So you raise your boys, and I'll hang with my girls, and it'll be fine. But... Finally, my my cousin has a boy. Then I meet him, and he's a little savage, as predicted. And uh, I thought, fantastic. We've got a Landry boy to carry on the name. A little worried about it being you, but that's cool. This was a tragedy in Israel of somebody's family line, and the name of the family died. Elimelech's two sons are dead. Elimelech's two sons did not have any children. The line stops there. But Deuteronomy 25 is put in place to preserve the name. So somebody is supposed to perpetuate the name of the dead, perpetuate the inheritance of the dead, to continue on with their inheritance that God had given them. There's significance to all of these things. And it was the great fear of every Israelite. Their family name would not continue. So Mr. No-Name has the opportunity now to step in and do the right thing. Mr. No-Name goes, I'll take the field, but I'm actually not interested in doing the duty. So I'm going to pass. He's not prepared to take on the burden of redeeming the property and the name. He's not prepared to sacrifice something of himself to be the family redeemer. Now think of it like this. Boaz basically says, well, you in the presence of all these elders and all this community who are gathered around and Brett who's watching in because he kind of likes awkward situations, would you in the presence of all of these, would you take one of my four options? Would you A, take the field, marry Ruth, take care of Naomi and do what I'm prepared to do? Will you do that? 
That's what he's saying to him. Or would you be, take the field, say that you'll marry Ruth, and then kind of renege on the deal after it's done? It's not going to be a good look for you, but I mean, it's something you might, might do. Would you option C, just take the field and appeal to the letter of the law and say, actually, I'm not the brother-in-law, I'm a family redeemer, but I'm a bit more distant. I don't think I have to follow the letter of the law on this. I think it's something that I'm not obligated to do, and I actually don't want to, but I'm going to take the field anyways. Thank you very much. Or would you, D, just continue on your way, say no to the offer, and let me worry about the whole thing? That's effectively what Boaz is presenting to him. And he responds, option D, I'm going to be on my way. Thank you very much. Mr. No-Name is gone. Mr. No-Name was interested when it benefited him, but he was not interested when it would cost him something. Um, Too many of us think that way. I'll care for the poor if it benefits me. I'll give that gift if I know that it'll be reciprocated. I'll step into this situation and handle, you know, whatever comes at me. But best you understand, I'll be calling in a favor later on. That doesn't operate in grace. That doesn't operate in the kingdom that way. Trying to get something that costs you nothing is antithetical to the kingdom of Jesus. The kingdom of Jesus actually says, you get something that cost you nothing. God the Father sent God the Son, his one and only Son, because of the depth of love he has for the world, that he might offer us the free gift of salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus. That's the Christian story doesn't cost us anything in the sense of up front. It's free to receive. Now, it's going to cost you your life, and you need to know that. It's not transactional in that way. Salvation is not something you could have ever earned on your own anyways. It is a gift, and so it reorients your heart to live differently. But Mr. No Name wants the benefit without paying the cost, and that just doesn't work in God's economy. Now here's the irony in all of it. When he seeks to protect his own inheritance and he doesn't make sure that the family of Elimelech and the lineage of Elimelech and the name of Elimelech is actually cared for, we know Elimelech's name. We don't know his. Which name then would you say has been blotted out of the history of Israel? Look at verses 7 to 10. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. One drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you were witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi, the widow of Elimelech, right? All that belonged to Elimelech, 
and to all that belonged to Kilion and Malon, her sons. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. He's saying, not only have I said I'll do this, I'm kind of committing to it in your presence. I'm going to do what's right. The worthy man, Boaz, does what the worthy man should do. He does a worthy thing. Redeemer number two. Boaz makes good on his promise. Promise that he made to Ruth the night before. He goes and he sorts it out the very next day. Now, there would be a lot less transactions in my life if the way you handled the transaction was the giving and exchanging of a sandal. It's disgusting. Stinky feet. Come on. For some reason, this is what's gone on, and it means it's significant. This is not just like, yeah, 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 you go ahead, do your thing. This is, go ahead, do your thing, and I'll walk home with one sandal on. I don't actually understand how it works. I'm not trying to say, but something significant has just happened. And the worthy man, Boaz, does the worthy thing, and he's going to take Ruth. He's not just going to take the land. He is going to marry Ruth and perpetuate the name of Elimelech. The son that will be born will not be his. So when he has to carve up his inheritance, he's now giving it to somebody else's son. Oh, it's costly. Redemption is costly. Verses 13 to 15. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and, she, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, that his name may be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Redeemer 1 is Mr. No-Name who fails and leaves the scene. Mr. Uh, Mr. No-Name has passed on the opportunity. Redeemer 2 is Boaz who does the right thing. And Redeemer 3, look at this, what they're saying. Blessed be the Lord, verse 14, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. I want you to see something else in this text. Do you know who's saying that? Verse 14 says the women. The women of the town. Back in chapter 1, I don't know if you remember this, in verse 19, if you get your Bibles open, it says, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem and when they came to Bethlehem the whole town stirred because of them and the women said is this Naomi now here's how I read that and I'm not sure that it's 100% accurate but I'm going to tell you anyways the women said is that Naomi and then I think the conversation went like this she looks terrible she is aged poorly in Moab her husband and sons are dead Maybe God judged her because she left. Maybe she's done something deserving of all of the calamity that seems to be around her life. Do you see the only person she has with her is a Moabite? And ladies, you know, we don't like Moabites. It's never fun to be the person being talked about when you have not done well. And she overhears them and she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She says, call me bitter, don't call me pleasant. 
Those women saw her in chapter one. Now what do they say? Now what do they say? Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. I want you to notice what they have witnessed in the life of Naomi. I want you to notice that they saw the widowed, childless, bitter woman who blamed God for her circumstances. And I want you to notice that through the love of Boaz and through the love of Ruth in her life, she has undergone a transformation and she is now kind of a different person than they saw back in chapter one. And the women say, look how kind God has been to you. He is our redeemer. Do you know that the watching world around us and and even one another here, our faith is strengthened when we see your difficult circumstances and how God is then glorified in the outworking of them? Do Do you know that? Like we could be the crowd of women at the gate of the city when Naomi comes walking in and they go, is that Naomi? Oh man, that's not good. And the same women I think are sitting there and they're saying, look, look how kind God has been to you. That's beautiful. That is the transformative work that we undergo as we come to Christ and he begins to transform us more and more into the image and likeness of his son. Francis Schaeffer said, after we have done our best to communicate to a lost world, still we must never forget the final apologetic which Jesus gives is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. Our world is so full of debate and opinion and rhetoric and people who've forgotten how to listen and people who've forgotten how to communicate in grace and people who have just never been heard, and people who have never heard truth, and people who don't have the ability to interact and to dialogue in this way. And so sometimes we try to share our words with people, and we should, and we should never give up, and we should never stop, and we should do it winsomely and with love and with grace. But we should also remember that the final apologetic, the last thing that people around us, for those of you who aren't Christians, you might even notice this, the way that we love one another says something about what we believe about God. And the way that Boaz and Ruth have loved Naomi through the entirety of this story says something about the nature and character of God, and I think the women noticed it. Because in the days of the judges, when this story was written, not all things were going well. Some things were going very poorly, in fact. Yet they had a glimmer of hope and almost like a sunbeam just piercing through the dark clouds. And they said, there is still light here. Look how kind God has been to Naomi. How we care for each other really matters. In the New Testament, we have 59 one another's. We need to think about them. Obed, the baby, becomes redeemer number three. Verses 14 and 15, look at it again. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, And may his name be renowned in Israel. Verse 15. 
He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. I believe that they are speaking of the baby on her lap, Obed. And they are saying that he is a redeemer because now Naomi has a son. The son of Ruth and Boaz is called the redeemer of Naomi and I just think that's a beautiful part of the story. Verse 16 says, Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap and became his nurse and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David who we know goes on to be king. John Flavel uh, said something that has been in my mind this entire series of Ruth and he said you can only read God's providence backwards you can actually only define what God has been doing in your life when you look back over the history of what he's already done so you're sitting in circumstances right now and you go, I'm confused I don't know what's happening I don't know what he's doing I don't know why he's doing it I was driving with a friend of mine as a pastor yesterday and they've gone through a very difficult last few weeks in their life with relationship to some stuff that their heart was very tied to and he just goes I know God's good, but I don't know what he's doing. And I said to him, because he's a pastor and preacher, I said, how many times have you said this to people before? And he goes, I know the answer. I'm just telling you it's not easy. And I said, I never said it was. But the truth of the matter is, we don't understand what he's doing until we look back upon it, and we may never understand this side of eternity, why he's doing the things in our lives that he's doing, but we still need to trust him. Here's Naomi, she's lost her husband, she's lost her son, she's destitute, broken, she's alone, and she's bitter, and now she's holding the grandfather of King David. Do you know when Obed was born, she didn't know he was going to be the grandfather of King David? She probably never knew that, this side of eternity. But when she can look back on it, she can say, I was the nurse to the grandfather of King David and only the good parts of King David. I don't want any part of the messy parts of his life. I'm in the lineage of the Messiah, Jesus. Because God made a promise to David that one of his generations, one of his descendants would sit on the throne of God eternally. And his name is Jesus Christ. And she gets to look back now in eternity Looking back, going like, I didn't see it, I didn't know what was going on, but oh God, you honored me. That I sat there and was the nurse of the grandfather of King David. See, we go through stuff all the time that we will never know the outworkings of. But we have to trust him that this is who he is. He has revealed himself to us here so that we would know that he's this kind of God. You're in difficulties, you're in struggles, you're confused. He's not a vindictive God. He is a God of everlasting love towards you. And he showed it to you upon the cross as he sent his son to die and to redeem you, that you would be his. And it's all here. And so we know that we can trust him because he's never changing. God's providence can only be read backwards. And of course, the fourth redeemer in our story is Jesus the ultimate redeemer. For us on this side of the story of Ruth, we can look at it and 
we glory in it because we understand it's part of God's big story. We actually find that it's one of the books that helps us to find our place in God's story. It's one of the things that we can do to figure out what's going on in our lives. We can look at the way that he's worked out all these circumstances with his people. But we also stand on this side of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. I hope this isn't a spoiler alert for anybody, but I've, I've read the end of the book and I know how it works. And we actually need to allow those future promises in our lives to inform how we live in the present moment. It's difficult when you're in Naomi's situation and everything has gone poorly. It's difficult. That's why you need a community of people around you to reveal God's love to you, to show God's kindness to you, that you might remember like Naomi did and begin to worship again. Um, we, living on this side of the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, having in our hands his word to us about how all things will end, though it may be a little unclear, but we know what's going to happen. One day Jesus is going to return gloriously and we will live with him eternally. And my contention to you as we read and wrap up the book of Ruth is this. We as people living in the 21st century on the west coast of North America in the city of Vancouver in the neighborhood of Kitsilano, we cannot be people who live our lives like everybody else where we go past, present, and future. Where we think about our past and where we're consumed with our present and we either worry or dream about our future. I want to say that as followers of Jesus, we need to change the order, and we need to live past, future, present. And we need to allow the future promises of God to inform our present circumstances and lives. Our past has been dealt with in the sense that those of us who follow Jesus have confessed our sin, we have asked Christ to take it from us and we've asked him to save us. Our past is dealt with. I am not who I once was by God's grace. And I'm not under the judgment of God in that way because of the work of Jesus. My past is gloriously cared for. But because I know God's future in the sense that he has revealed it to us in his word, I can take those future promises and I can allow my present existence to be informed by what God has promised to do in the future. So I don't have to worry about some of the things that my family who don't know Jesus around me are all worrying about. My friends who don't know Jesus are consumed with these other things and I just got, and they go, why are you worried about this? I go, I, my worries have been kind of taken away from me because I know what God's promised me in the future. The resurrection of Jesus puts something in motion that is transformative for all of our existence and we are, as 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says we are new creations in Christ. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. And I want to live in the newness. Not the old, and I want the newness to inform my present circumstances and what I give myself to and how I live because I have been redeemed. It says in Revelation 21 that there is going to be one day, in verse 5, it says that the one who's seated on the throne says that he's making all things new. That he's in the midst of that work and that he will one day complete that work. That there will be a day where there is no more 
crying that there is no more sorrow, that there is no more death, that there is no more sin. Oh, and I long for that day. But I want to live now in that resurrection life that he's offered us. And I want to live with a purpose and understand that in the midst of my current circumstances in life, that I have a place in God's story because of what Jesus has already done. Not past, present, future, but past dealt with, future informing the present circumstances as I live. Our present is informed by the future promises of the redemptive work of our resurrected Redeemer. Our fourth Redeemer is the last we'll ever need. He's accomplished it all. He paid the ultimate price so that we could come to him. Would you stand as we respond? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.